Every student in school faces tests. Although they are often dreaded, tests are necessary to help master a subject. And Christians in the school of Christ are given tests. The Apostle John tells us one test Jesus gave. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to what? Test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Some tests are more important than others. My youngest daughter, Ruthie, took her national speech and language examination a little over a year ago. The test is called the Praxis II. Her entire speech and language pathology career, all of the education she had received to get her master's and her bachelor's for that, hinged on that one test. And for nine months, she diligently prepared for this exam. On the day of her examination, I was in the Ukraine. Actually, I was over with Louis Torres. We were uh, speaking at a camp meeting together. But I called her, and I prayed with her, and I found her surprisingly calm. She told me she thought she was going to pass, and of course she did. What made her confident? She had taken many practice tests and was passing each one without difficulty. One of the best ways to study for tests is to study well-designed review books and take practice tests. Most national examinations provide sample questions and practice tests, and there are other companies that provide other practice tests. And God wants us to pass his examination, and to help us to prepare, the Bible provides a review book with sample questions and practice tests to study. The book of Deuteronomy which actually means the law repeated, is the review booklet that God has provided his people. And within this review booklet are sample test questions and their answers. We'll be looking at Deuteronomy 13 together. Verse 3 tells us that a test is coming, and this chapter is going to help us prepare for the test. The chapter gives three important test questions with their answers. But... Before we look at the first sample test question, we should pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful that we have this opportunity to study together as a class uh, and prepare for the test. Our series has been called Prepared for the Final Crisis, and now we come down to the last study of your word on this important topic. I pray that you'll help me to have the right words to say. Um, Give me a clear mind and then speak to me and may I hear you and be able to share your thoughts with your people today. And give them listening ears and a surrendered heart, both of us. Um, All of us together, seeking to know your will so that we can do it. Send your Holy Spirit um, in that powerful way that only you can, can send. And may it be clear to us that we've been with Jesus and that he is teaching us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 4 says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. 
what should you do? This is not some hypothetical situation that will never occur. Signs, wonders, miracles, fulfilled dreams and visions to deceive is an end-time scenario that we need to understand well. Christ said at the end of time this test would be given. False Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders. This test would be so difficult that few would pass it, for Jesus added that these great signs and wonders would be given to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Satan's real target of attack is not this world. He already has them. His real target of attack is God's remnant people. It is you. It is me. It is us. And that is why God has given the careful test review with sample questions, because this is going to be a hard examination. This is Satan's overmastering test. It's specifically designed, customized, carefully tailor-made to deceive us, to deceive us at the end of time. Satan already has tested various scenarios through the centuries, and he is now developing the final test. He wants me to be overconfident like Peter so that I think, even if I don't say, although everyone else will be offended, I'm not going to be. Peter warned of end-time false teachers. He had known of his own denial of Christ. And he says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them. As I said, Peter knew about denying the Lord, did he not? Paul also warned of the deceptive signs and wonders at end time. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Notice that signs, wonders, and miracles are a test for our love of the truth. But since Jesus said he was the truth, the love of the truth is love of Jesus. And so deceptive miracles test our love for Jesus and reveal whether our love for him is genuine, whether it's deep, or whether it is not. Twice John the Revelator called attention to great signs and wonders given to deceive. Revelation 13, 13 and 14 says that the image to the beast performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived." And again in Revelation 16, 13, and 14, John said, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. We see the Bible makes it clear that deceptive miracles will be an important end-time test to show whether we love Jesus with all our hearts. Let's look at the second test question, which is really a variation of the first situation. Deuteronomy 13, 6. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is, a, who is as your own soul, 
secretly entices you, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you, or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. What should you do? But there's a third question, which is another variant. If you hear someone in one of your cities, which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, saying, Corrupt men have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. What should you do? You can't help but notice there's a refrain that is common to all three situations. First, all three situations call for unity. In situation one, the, the, in situation one, the words let us are repeated twice. Let us is a call to do things together, to unify. The call for unity is also seen in situation two. And again, it is seen in situation three. Is every call for unity a good thing? No. No. There are calls for unity that are very bad things. Not every unity conference is a call we should join. The Nazis united with the fascists at the start of World War II. Was this a good thing? No. Didn't Jesus pray for unity? Yes, he did. But Christ's prayer for unity in the truth is found for, with unity in the Word of God. The unity that is being urged in all three of these test situations is a unity in error, a unity in falsehood, a unity in deception. And all three situations attempt to unify around false worship. This is a call to unitedly go from the worship and obedience to the, of the law of God to serving other gods and united in that attempt. Unity in error can only be had by appeals to our love of pleasure or by creating fear by our desire to avoid pain. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember at the uh, plain of Shinar, demanded unity in worship. And it begins by an innocuous let us, but it will always end in a demand, you will or else. The Bible identifies unification around air as a part of the end time testing. The book of Revelation says, for God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, that is, they are unified, and to give their kingdom to the beast. But such unity at best is temporary, we notice the next word, until, unified until the word of the Lord, the words of God are fulfilled. They're unified against the word of God, but in the unity against the word of God, they're fulfilling the word of God. God does not call us to unity in sin, but separation from sin. Jesus, our example, was separate from sinners. God told the Israelites to separate themselves from the tents of the rebel leaders, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Those that failed to separate themselves died in the judgments of God. Paul says that this instruction is for us. We too must come out from among them and be separate. He also says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be, what is the next phrase? partakers with them and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather expose them Ephesians 5 6 through 11 
we see that there are three scenarios for the very subtle, very difficult end-time test of our faithfulness to God. Scenario one involves the test of supernatural signs and wonders, miracles, wonders, dreams, and visions with information that proves to be correct. The test of a respected leader, the test of a beloved teacher. Scenario two involves the test from beloved family members and trusted friends. Scenario three involves the test from citywide apostasy, widespread apostasy evolving whole sections of Israel. Although these will be intense tests at end time, they have been Satan's temptation from the very beginning. Eve failed this test. She saw a miracle occur before her eyes. A serpent spoke. The miracles got her attention, and ultimately she partook of the forbidden fruit. Adam was then tempted by his wife, and he joined her in partaking of the forbidden fruit. This was the supernatural evidence followed by a beloved family member. And Adam's firstborn son, Cain, established an idolatrous city named after his firstborn son. Citywide apostasy. And this also explains how idolatry begins with one, but ends with widespread apostasy. It only takes one cancerous cell to spread throughout the body. It only takes one contagious germ to spread throughout the body. It multiplies. But we need to continue our study of these three situations more closely. Notice situation one. If there arises, what is the next two words? Among you, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams. Is this an outsider? No, No, this is one of us. And this warning is repeated in the New Testament. Paul says, also from among who? Yourselves. He was talking to the elders of Ephesus. And he said, from among the elders, the leaders, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. But let's continue. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. This is not simply, brothers and sisters, a theoretical danger to ancient Israel. I would like you to notice very carefully the warning that Ellen White wrote to leading physicians November 1903. It's found in Second Selected Messages 53. Wonderful scenes with which Satan will be closely connected. And what does it say then? Will soon take place. Wonderful scenes. Satan closely connected. God's word declares that Satan will work miracles. He will make people sick and then will suddenly remove from them his satanic power. What will he do? He will make people sick and then suddenly remove the sickness that he has caused. They will then be regarded as healed. These works of apparent healing, read the next few uh, words with me, will bring Seventh-day Adventist to the, to the test. What will bring Seventh-day Adventist to the test? These works of apparent healing, these signs and wonders will confuse many, even leading physicians and other leaders. 
Though this was written during the Alpha of Apostasies with Dr. Kellogg, it appears to me to be a warning for the Omega. Deuteronomy 11:16. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. This warning is still true today. What should we do if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder? The Bible tells us first to wait and see if the sign or wonder comes to pass. If the sign or wonder does not come to pass, what should you do? You know it's false. But what should you do if the sign or wonder comes to pass? The proper response is to immediately examine carefully for any introduction of air that is called new light. Any departure from the platform of truth that has been established since 1844 and the early Bible conferences after that. Any departure from the platform of truth involving the Sabbath, the organization of the church, Bible order, the three angels' messages, any deviation from the faith of the body, there's always a giveaway. There is an infallible way to recognize falsehood. Satan's constant effort is to turn people from a plane, thus saith the Lord. Deuteronomy 28, 14, you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Deviation from God's word is the beginning of the worship of false gods. That's how it starts. Jesus, in his departing instruction to his disciples, repeated this. He said in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Until Jesus comes, what are we supposed to teach? Jesus' commandments. Jesus said, teach the commandments, teach my commandments until the end. And if someone is teaching us to depart from the instruction of God's word, if someone is minimizing God's word, if someone is explaining away God's plain instruction, his directions for worship in the Bible, we have all the information we need to determine that we are listening to a false teacher. It resulted in Christianity moving from the religion of Christ to the religion of the bishop and the development of the papacy. And the Bible warns that Seventh-day Adventists too must pass the test of such false teachers at the end of time. Now the Spirit expressly says, Paul uh, told us, that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. How could it be? We have the truth. But some will do what? Depart because they prefer the doctrines of demons than the doctrines of Jesus. Now, don't miss this. They will not claim to be following demons. They'll claim to be following Jesus. They will not claim to be following away from the Bible, they will claim to be teaching the Bible. Notice this solemn warning from the pen of inspiration, last day events 179, many will stand in our pulpits 
with the torch of false prophecy in their hands, kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. If you see this, if you hear this, what should you do? You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. The proper response is immediately avoid listening to a false teacher. He has been given power from Satan. He is teaching dangerous, contagious heresy. He is teaching rebellion. Don't buy books or read blogs or articles of anything that false religious teacher writes. Don't attend any lectures the false teacher is giving. Don't listen to videos or listen to MP3s that are available. Don't give such teachers any attention whatsoever. Don't respond to invitations to to listen to such lectures. October 1979, Dr. Desmond Ford delivered a lecture to an Adventist Association of Adventist Forums. And very shortly thereafter, I didn't know Desmond Ford. I knew he was uh, uh, some uh, teacher, and, and uh, uh, many of my friends thought he was a very good man. So as far as I knew, he was a good man. And one of my friends from California gave me a call on the phone. And he told me how excited he was with this lecture, and he was going to send me a tape of the lecture. And so I was happy to get it. Um, I want to be uh, following what the Lord said. But I did have one little caution in my mind, and that was it was given at an Adventist forum, and I didn't expect the, that group to invite somebody like Jesus to speak to them. So before I listened to it, I asked what it was about, and he said it was about the sanctuary and other things. Before we started listening, my wife and I started listening to the tape, We sat down and we read the chapters in Great Controversy on the sanctuary. Several little chapters in there. I wanted to know the truth to see if this was drawing me to the truth or from the truth. And so then, after we did that, then we turned on the tape. And it took about five minutes to realize that what that individual was saying and what was said by a servant of the Lord were totally different. One was leading away, one was not. And we turned off the tape as soon as we recognized it and we tossed it in the trash. We had our answer. But Ford is small fry. He didn't do any miracles. Wait until you have Fords and miracles too. But we have a sure protection to the law and to the testimony. What's the testimony of Jesus? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, there is no light in them. And as a plant, I need light if I want to grow. I don't need the darkness of night. What is the proof that a message is true? It is not found in signs, wonders, or miracles. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign. Who's this John? John the Baptist. John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. A message from heaven is a message about Jesus, and it tells the truth about Jesus. 
I wanna know Jesus, I wanna reflect Jesus, I wanna speak of Jesus, I wanna tell the truth about Jesus, don't you? And that's the kind of person I want to listen to as a teacher. In test questions, there's often a distractor, a piece of information that's really irrelevant. In situation one, there's a distractor. Most individuals taking this test will be thrown off by the distractor, a sign, wonder, a miracle, a fulfilled prediction. But can a miracle turn falsehood into truth? No. So miracles and signs are simply distractors and must be disregarded since they can't show whether something is from God or something from Satan. But we should notice what miracles test. For the Lord your God is doing what? Testing you. What is God testing us over? What did the Apostle Paul says, say deceptive miracles test? Our love of the truth, which we saw was our love for Jesus. Does Moses agree with Paul? The Lord your God is testing you to know or to show whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Paul and Moses agree. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. The Old and the New Testament say the same thing. Deceptive miracles test our love and loyalty to God. The only ones that will be saved are those who love God with all their heart and with all their soul. This is the test that will weed out people who don't have this kind of love. Notice this is not a test of our knowledge. It's not a test of very specific, esoteric information about the Bible. It is the test of our character, our habitual thoughts and feelings. The only way to pass this test is to possess the six character qualities that come with loving God with all our hearts and with all our souls. First, they walk with God. Those who love him spend time with him, like Enoch. The activities of their lives don't take them away from God. They do all their activities together. They're not walking behind him. They're not walking away from him. They're walking with him. And you can't walk together unless you're agreed. You have to be agreed on several things. You have to be agreed on your destination. You have to be agreed on your speed. And you have to be agreed on your road. And they're walking with God. Second, they fear God. Those who love God with all their hearts and with all their souls have an awe and a holy reverence for God and holy things. They're careful to heed his warnings. They're attentive to all his counsels. They fear him. They tremble at his word. If his word says it, that settles it. Three, those who love God with all their hearts and with all their souls keep his commandments. What does it mean to keep his commandments? We moved 18 months ago. Prior to the move, we had a larger house so that Sherry could care for her parents, her mother and her dad. Godly people, wonderful people. What an enrichment to our home. But then her dad died. And her mother moved down to Orlando um, with Sherry's sister and uh, brother-in-law where they have better medical facilities for people who are in their late 90s and a little better weather for the winter than up in the mountains there in Georgia where we live. And 
So we didn't need the large house, and we sold the home and moved into our current 1,500-square-foot home. Now, this move required us to pare down. And we gave away a lot of things. We sold some things. We threw away a lot of things. If we didn't absolutely need it, we got rid of it. But that which we most valued, we did what? We kept. But let's take this a step further when we're looking at keeping the commandments. What if a fire broke out in your home? When you could take only one thing, you select your greatest priority, your most important valuable, what would you take? This helps us understand what it means to keep the commandments. What is most valuable in your life? When you have to choose between the commandments or keeping a friendship, which one do you keep? When you have to choose between keeping your job or keeping the commandments, which one will you keep? When you choose between keeping possessions and money or keeping the commandments, which one will you keep? And when you have to choose between saving your life or keeping the commandments, which will you keep? To keep something means to guard it and preserve it. Those who love God with all their hearts and with all their souls guard and preserve God's commandments as the last thing they would let go of. When they abandon everything else, they keep the commandments. This is a test for our love for God. And those who love God with all their hearts and with all their souls, forth obey his voice by responding to the convictions of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This brings true, unifying around the truth as it is in Jesus. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. John 10, 16. Five, those who love God with all their hearts and with all their souls are servants of God, not servants of sin. They serve him. We're going to look a little more closely at serving God and what it means in a moment. And lastly, those who love God with all their hearts and with all their souls cling to God. They realize their complete dependence on him. Nothing can move them. When the multitudes forsake God, they continue to follow him. Like Cleopas and his friends, they urge, Jesus, they urge Jesus to abide with them. And those who do not love God with all their hearts and with all their souls will naturally have not these six characteristics. And they'll fail this test. But those who love God, these will be seen in their lives. The three temptations of Christ in the wilderness focus on miracles. Jesus wants to get the eyes off of God's word and direct it elsewhere. And miracles are his favorite approach. Prove that you are the Messiah and we should follow you by doing a miracle. Make these stones into bread, then I'll believe you, he said to Jesus. But would Satan have believed had Jesus made the stones into bread? No. Later, Jesus did create bread, multiplying it from a lad's five loaves and two fishes. But did Satan believe after this miracle? Of course not. And Jesus said in Luke 16, 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. 
When we reject the testimony of Scripture, nothing anyone else can say, nothing anyone else can do will move us. And God will not perform miracles to help us believe because that doesn't help us believe in his word. That establishes our confidence in miracles. In the second temptation, again, Satan urged Jesus to prove that he was the Messiah by jumping from the pinnacle of the temple roof and not getting hurt. In the earth's final test, multitudes of Seventh-day Adventists will be deceived by means of miracles. They will accept doctrines of devils because there's a miracle. And these same multitudes will reject the plain testimony of God's law and God's word and will demand a miracle. This, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is the spirit of Satan. Throughout Christ's ministry, the unbelieving Jews would tempt Jesus, do a miracle and we will believe. Even while Christ was hanging on the cross, when they should have seen him as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, they said, come down from the cross, we'll believe. Do a miracle. But Jesus doesn't un answer unbelief with miracles. It is the Bible, let me repeat, not miracles upon which we base our faith. Amen. In the third and final temptation in the wilderness, Satan performed a miracle in front of Jesus. Matthew, 48, uh, Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10 tells us, the devil took him up to an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. This is supernatural, a sign, a wonder, a miracle. But Jesus was not distracted by this. And then Satan tried to bribe Jesus by saying, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But it was then that Jesus said to Satan, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. All of Satan's temptations are to lead us into idolatry, into the worship of demons instead of the worship of God. That's the goal. But when Jesus heard this invitation to worship something other than God, he dismissed Satan. And when we hear this suggestion, we too must follow Jesus' instruction an example, refuse to listen any longer to such an individual. But let's go on to the second situation. Deuteronomy 13, 6 and 7. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend who is, at your, who is as your own soul, secretly entices you saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. Notice something interesting, interesting in this temptation. You see the word? Yeah. Secretly. Secrecy here. The Hebrew word is siteh, and it means in this context concealed, disguised, hidden, covered. This means you are not overtly invited to worship idols, you are invited to something that seems innocuous, harmless, where other Christians, maybe other Seventh-day Adventists are, maybe some leaders even. Often it will be to some celebration or party. Friend invites friend, brother invites brother, children invite their parents. Notice this statement in Patriarchs and Prophets 454. It was secretly arranged 
that Balaam should induce the Israelites to attend. He was regarded by them as a prophet of God and hence had little difficulty in accomplishing his purpose. Great numbers of the people joined him in witnessing these festivities of the heathen. Party. But when you determine that the activity would take you away from the service of God, what should you do? You shall not consent to him or listen to him. The distractor in this question is the tie of family and friend. But Solomon put it properly. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. We must recognize that this is simpler, simply sinners enticing us. Jesus warned in Matthew 10, 36 and 37 that a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. God called Abraham away from his idolatrous family. God calls us to be faithful to him. Listen to his voice, resolutely turning away from any who would tempt us to unfaithfulness to God's commandments. God wants us to see in all such temptations a witnessing opportunity. Messages to Young People, page 370 says, if you truly belong to Christ, you will have opportunities for witnessing for him. You'll be invited to attend places of amusement. And then it will be that you will have an opportunity to testify to your Lord. If you are true to Christ, then, you will not try to form excuses for your non-attendance, but will plainly and modestly declare that you are a child of God and your principles would not allow you to be in a place, even for one occasion, where you could not invite the presence of your Lord. Do you know where many, many good young people take their first step away from the Lord? Invitations to amusements while they are at school. Speaking of those from Christian homes now away at, at school, the messenger of the Lord says, young men and women who have tried to be Bible Christians are persuaded to join the party and they are drawn into the ring. They do not discern that these entertainments are really Satan's banquet. They become confused as to what is right for them as Christians to do. Respected teachers and leaders are approving. Their young friends think it is harmless. They do not want to be thought singular and naturally inclined to follow the example of others. Thus, they come under the influence of those who have never had the divine touch on heart or mind. Jesus set the example, Desire of Ages 89 says, when questioned why he did not join in the frolics of the youth of Nazareth, he said, it is written, I've rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. The Bible tells us that even the love and respect he had for his own mother could not get him to deviate from God's instruction. Luke 8, 19 through 21 says, Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Those who hear and obey God's word should be our friends. If a loved one brings such a test to you, remember they are mediums for the source of danger, the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far from you, from one end of the earth or to the other end of the earth. 
We are strangers. We are pilgrims in this earth. We must separate from the culture that surrounds us. But now we move on to situation three. This has another interesting variation. This is a report of apostasy, a departure from the faith. This is a report of preachers leaving the faith and leading entire congregations into disobedience. These are not outsiders, foreigners. These are enemies that develop from within. You cannot be active in the church today and not hear reports of apostasy, departures from the faith. As we move closer to the end, every wind of doctrine is going to be blowing. Nearly everyone here could give me a list of strange doctrines that have been taught by offshoots and actually split churches or are splitting them today. This is also an end-time test. We go back to what we read earlier, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. They were once in the faith, rejoicing in the truth, but they departed. Why? Instead of giving heed to God's law and God's word, they give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Their sins make them susceptible. Their consciences are damaged. Again, Paul told the elders of the flock, remember this, for I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And what should we do? Then you should inquire, search out, and ask diligently. Not every report of treason and apostasy in this that's given by others is true. Though we have been told you shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, there are those who are talebearers. Jeremiah speaks of the rumor mongers with the philosophy report, they say, and we will report it. It used to be that we called these people gossips. Now we call them journalists. In the early days of the children of Israel in Canaan, there was a report that the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan were in apostasy, building a a competing altar to worship at. The tribes on the west side of the Jordan were ready to go to war over this. But upon investigation, it was found that the report was false. The eastern tribes actions had been misunderstood. Everything, I repeat, that is reported as apostasy is not apostasy. It needs to be investigated by the proper people. You don't knee-jerk deny it. You don't simply ignore it. You don't uncritically accept the report. You investigate it. You investigate it to see if it is really true that such an abomination has been done among God's people. The Bible says you shall inquire, search out, and ask diligently. The distractor in this report is the report. The, excuse me, the distractor in this question is the report. Will you take the report of someone else without further examination? No. This is what foolish people do. Solomon says the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. 
we have Jesus' own example. When he came down and visited with Abraham, he told Abraham, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, he knows, but what was he doing? Giving us an example that we should do as he did. Years before, he did the same thing at the Tower of Babel. We have seen that the three scenarios in Deuteronomy 13 are descriptions of end-time temptations. In scenario one, there's a deceiver that does miracles but tempts to idolatry. In scenario two, beloved family members and friends tempt to idolatry. In scenario three, we are given a report of citywide apostasy. There are a number of wrong answers for this question. Wrong answer one, we could ignore the report and do nothing. Wrong answer two, we could uncritically accept the report and rashly condemn the city. Or wrong answer three, we could uncritically reject the report. However, no matter which of the three variations of this test we look at, they all contain the same clue. This is the giveaway detail that lets you know how to answer this question. But to, be more, to more fully understand these questions, we must look more closely at idolatry and more closely at the commandments that forbid idolatry. The commandments, as you know well, were written on two stone slabs. The first stone slab, called the first table, contained the first four commandments, which describe our duty to who? God. Moses summarized this table in Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Love for Jesus is not proven simply by our profession of love. My little children, John said, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. The three test situations in Deuteronomy test and reveal the genuineness of our love for God. There's an answer clue that is common to all three situations. We want to examine this clue. Let us go after other gods and let us serve them. We want to see what commandment this clue asks us to break. Let's start with the first commandment. And God spoke all these words saying. One of the six characteristics necessary to pass this test question is to recognize and follow the voice of God. You remember that's what uh, Moses said, voice of God. Is this the voice of God? Yes. God spoke every word found in Exodus 20. Some people have compared Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20 and noted some differences. Deuteronomy 5 is Moses' summary of the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses is explaining the commandments and adds some of his own inspired meditations. But if you want to know exactly what God said, it's here in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. If we go after other gods, are we breaking the first commandment by putting other gods before Jehovah God? Yes. This is breaking the first commandment. Let's go to the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. 
if we serve other gods, which commandment are we breaking? The second commandment. It is obvious that if we go after other gods and serve them, we are breaking the first two commandments. And the first two commandments have to do with idolatry, the worship of other gods. If we are not worshiping God alone, which is the only way you can worship him, if we are not serving God alone, which is the only way we can serve him, does anything in the rest of the law matter? Nothing. The actual foundation to all the commandments is the first commandment. Like a row of dominoes, all the commandments are linked to the first. In a wedding vow, the husband publicly forsakes all others and takes his wife alone. Likewise, the wife forsakes all others and takes her husband alone. Becoming a Christian, being baptized, is like a public wedding vow. We forsake all others and take Jesus alone. That's the first commandment. Anything we choose besides Jesus is a God we serve. We we are to take our directions from him alone. We follow his law alone. We show our love for God by keeping his Ten Commandments. This is the most quoted part of the Ten Commandments, love me and keep my commandments, there in the the end of the Second Commandment. When a husband goes after other women before his wife, does he reveal that he loves his wife with all of his heart? And when we go after other gods and serve them, we reveal that we do not love God with all our hearts. This is unfaithfulness to God. It is not loving God with all the heart. It is the adultery of the first table of the law. Please notice the phrase, let us serve them. We go after other gods when we serve them, but what does it mean to serve other gods or to be servants of God or other gods? How do we be their servants? We can serve only one master. Jesus says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Because we can only serve one master when we serve another God, we are no longer serving the living God. This generally happens unconsciously. The master we obey is the master we serve. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey. Malachi 1.6, the master we honor and reverence is the master we serve. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? The master we follow is the master we serve. John 12.26, if any man serve me, Let him follow me. We can profess to worship God, but but who we obey is who we truly worship by serving. The The word serve means voluntary obedience to God's law. Every pagan god had its rules, its regulations, its laws. And the laws of the pagan gods were always different from the Ten Commandments. Did any other God other than the God of the Bible teach the Ten Commandments? No, No, absolutely not. The Ten Commandments are the distinguishing aspect of the God of the Bible. To go after other gods and serve them 
means to choose a different master with different laws we prefer to obey. To serve other gods is to reject the Ten Commandments and to erect a different series of commandments for ourselves. A call to break God's commandments is a call to serve other gods that don't have that commandment. And this is so important, I want to repeat it. A call to break God's commandment is a call to to serve other gods that don't have that commandment. 2 Chronicles 7.19 If you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them. Encouragement in any activity that is forbidden in the Bible is the same as an invitation to worship another god. Is that clear? Education 196. The youth should be taught that the laws of nature are the laws of God as truly divine as are the precepts of the Decalogue. When we are encouraged to violate the laws of health, we are being invited to worship another god. Joseph's love for God was tested by Potiphar's wife. He passed the test. He refused to be enticed. He refused to go after another God. He refused to serve another God. He refused to sin. His fidelity cost him his liberty. But he was more free as a prisoner than Potiphar's wife was in her palace. Several years ago, I got a call from a distressed Christian father. He had children that were now young adults following their schoolmates in college and had abandoned the Bible principles of health, music, and dress. They were following other gods. But he was giving them their way in the home and he said, maybe I have erred on the side of mercy. No, folk, that's not erring on the side of mercy. One thing we will not have time to look at in this chapter is the punishment that God will bring upon idolaters. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 13 makes it very clear that false prophets and those who follow them will be destroyed without mercy. God will not sanction disobedience. He won't do it. But now is God's time of mercy. However, never confuse mercy with indulgence. Mercy welcomes the repentant sinner. Indulgence welcomes the unrepentant sinner. Mercy gives hope for salvation from sin. Indulgence gives hope for salvation in sin. Mercy gives solemn warnings to the sinner. False charity gives false sympathy to the sinner and attacks the messenger of God who brings the warning as harsh, judgmental, unloving, and unchristlike. The last point we will look at in our passage is that in-time idolatry will first entice to sin, then command sin and punish those who are faithful to God's law. How does the United States force compliance with federal demands? This should serve as a reminder that at the end of time, those who obey God will not be able to buy or sell. The United States government um, in the prior administration withheld monies to schools that didn't support its policies. Of course, this one will too. Uh, In current events, we should see that persecution is approaching. Just remember that as the United States compels states to comply with evil directives by removing all monetary support, 
it will soon be doing this against the righteous. In 1842, Levi Stockman was a 30-year-old Methodist minister in the Methodist main conference. He was also a leader of the Adventist believers. The power of God attended his preaching. It was in counsel with Levi Stockman that Ellen G. White found hope and was converted. A year later, this young minister contracted tuberculosis and it spread rapidly. He soon was so weak that he had to retire from the ministry, but he was sustained by a Methodist fund for retired preachers. The July, then in July 1843, the Methodist Ministers' Conference condemned Millerite peculiarities. Methodist ministers were required to refrain from promulgating these truths. Although Levi was dying and was unable to preach and was receiving a small disability income from the church, he was required to agree to the new rules and refrain from presenting or believing the Adventist message. When Levi refused to agree to this change in the rules, he was placed on trial for heresy and threatened not only with expulsion from the church unless he complied, but was also warned that his widow and children would be denied any pension benefits. Don't miss this. This test for Levi is similar to the end time test when you can't buy or sell. Levi demonstrated before all heaven his loyalty to God. The best way he could provide for his wife and children was not to lead them to trust in money as their hope, but to trust in the Lord as their source of support. He resolutely refused to change his policy, was expelled from the ministry weeks before his death, leaving his widow and children without income. Those of us who are soon to be on Medicare will in the near future if we're still alive, have to choose between receiving our, I don't mean Medicare, Social Security is what I meant to say, probably Medicare too, receiving Social Security and abandoning God's truth or continue with God's truth and stop all means of support. Are you ready to lose your job, your pension, your social security? Are you ready to obey God even though it means the loss of everything you possess? Revelation 13, 17, no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. My mother faced uh, a test. She was single. Her husband, as I told her, had left her, and she had a a young son who needed support, and her sister took her to some meetings, evangelistic meetings, that were being held by George Vandeman. Her sister made that long trip from Berrien Springs to pick up my mother in Illinois and come back every night, drove several hours daily so mother could hear the message. And she accepted it. She accepted the Sabbath. She lost her job and she began to try. This was in the war. um, And she began to try to get jobs everywhere. And none opened up. And 
one day she heard that there was a job opening at a a large manufacturing plant that was supporting the World War II effort, making some armaments for the troops and for the war effort. And so she went and applied and interviewed with the woman who had told her as she explained that she, um, when they were ready to hire her, that she could not uh, work on Friday night or Sabbath. When she explained that, the lady told her that not only would she not be hired, but there was no way she'd get a job anywhere, and certainly she'd never work for that company. And so Mother now, once again, had no earthly support for herself and her son. A couple weeks went by, and she got a call from the president of the company that wondered if she would be willing to serve temporarily as his secretary. His secretary for the company had unexpectedly um, had to leave for a short time and was expected to come back. So she said she'd be glad to fill in. That secretary never did come back. And she became the boss of the person who told her she would never get a job. Dear folk, although at the end of time we cannot buy or sell, it will be very soon that we will be reigning as kings and priests with Jesus. The unearthly wicked, the earthly wicked decisions of judges and courts and juries will be reversed because we will appeal it to the judge of the universe. You've probably heard the story. But many years ago during worship in a little church as the ushers were returning to the front with the offering, a small boy tugged at the sleeve of one of the men whispering, please put the plate down upon the floor. Shocked, perplexed, the usher obeyed. And to further complicate matters, the lad stepped into the offering plate. It was his way of saying, I give my whole life to you, Lord, not just the coins in my pocket, but my time, strength, and all the days of my life. That enthusiastic and consecrated boy was none other than Robert Moffat, who became a pioneer missionary to Africa and father-in-law of the saintly missionary, David Livingston. God is looking for people who make that kind of commitment. Not just my time, not just my money. Lord, I want you to have it all. I am thine, O Lord, I've heard thy voice. Is that your desire? Will you just raise your hand and say, Lord, all of me, all of me today. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, you've given us the test questions so we can be prepared. You've given us samples, but you've also given us the answers. Lord, help us never to turn away from your answers and put a different answer on the test sheet. We want your way and your way alone. We want to be not worried about future times, we want to be faithful in our present times, knowing that that's going to prepare us 
like first grade prepares for second and second, third, that in our first grade experiences now, we will be preparing for the college graduate courses that you intend to give your special people. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Take our, our decisions and, and, and may we honor you today. In, in his name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.